As Stanley mentioned, yes, I've, I sort of come to food. My background is in social theory, but also science and technology studies, and hence my interest in the science um, and technology of food production, but also consumption and nutrition. That's pretty much how I sort of um, look at. So I'm bringing that to bear in my analysis of, of nutrition and as, a, as a form of knowledge, nutrition science. Also now looking at processed foods and ultra-processing, and really as, as a form of technology, the technological transformation of foods and, and, and how we can think about that. And so and, um, I really appreciate the very interdisciplinary nature of, of, of your program here around obesity. Um, and I think we um, uh, really need to approach food from those various uh, disciplinary lenses. So my, my talk today is focused on, it's kind of like my book project at the moment, looking at processed foods and the big food corporations that, that produce them. So I turn on to the substance that I'll be, and the issue that I'll be talking about today um, in forming that, that book project. And it is an extension of my work on nutritionism and, and um, analysis of, of nutrition science and pushing it a bit further, I think. Um, so just to give an overview, I'll be talking about um, food corporations and that is the transnational food corporations and the product, products they produce as ultra-processed foods, and I'll define that term. The sort of pressure they're under to improve the quality of their products because of their health impacts and new sort of market trends, so they're certainly trying to respond to, to that. And more specifically, what I'm talking today is their, their nutritional strategies they're using to, in response, how they're claiming to improve their food products through the strategies of reformulation, fortification, and what I'm calling functionalization. So I'm looking at those strategies, but also looking at the how they're able to make these arguments and, and get health claims on their foods and nutrient claims and so on. What are the sort of the dominant like, scientific, public health, and regulatory um, assumptions um, and approaches which they draw on to make those uh, those claims? Which, and I, in that sense, I think food industry, these corporations, have been fairly successful to a, to a point in capturing these nutritional discourses and regulatory discourses. For their benefit, uh, and I'll finish by um, talking about how, what other approaches to food and nutrition and, and these processed foods might might have a different outcome. So I'm talking about the so-called big food corporations, and in particular the food manufacturing. So I'm looking at packaged foods and beverages, whether it's you know, snack foods or soft drinks or uh, and so on, as opposed to fast foods, you know, fast food restaurants, hamburgers, and so on. And they're the they're the sort of you know, some, some of the top ten is a bit old now, that graphic, but all the various brands that they have. And they're very diverse, but they're, importantly, they're global um, corporations and their sales are expanding. I think it's really important. To, I think that this provides a bit of context of my talk. While sales are sort of levelled off in the north and they might be trying to improve the quality of some of their products in, in the north, it's really that, that the growth in, in sales globally is, is in the south, and they're really pushing hard on that. And some of these strategies that I'll be talking about are sort of very much focused on, on the south. And that's important, we're talking about the, the nutrition transition uh, and so on. And you know, so it's, it's just a graphic there, shows some of the growth in those countries over the years. And, and I won't talk about that today, but some of the sort of practical distributional strategies these, these companies develop to get their products out there, they have to create this supply chain sometimes. Like, Nestle's floating supermarket that they launched quite a few years ago now um, to take products up, up the Amazon, to communities up the Amazon. So this, this notion of ultra-processed foods, which I'll define, um, is a huge diversity of foods, of course, that, that food companies produce, and of various qualities. Some you know, could be fairly minimally processed, some highly processed. Of course, it's important how we de define these terms. 
Um, but these are the sort of products we're talking about. Um, and just very briefly here, you know, of course, we need to acknowledge that not all processed foods are bad necessarily or detrimental to your health, that there's all forms of different forms of processing. Some forms of processing can be beneficial to the quality of food, perhaps, and, and the nutritional profile and so on. Uh, fermentation techniques. So it's not about you know, vilifying processed foods, but actually understanding that, uh, that many of the, though, of the, of the uh, techniques used for processing um, to produce these products uh, are, have questionable uh, health benefits. And it's not just the addition of salt, sugar, and, and fat, and so on. It's a, the various refining processes, grinding, heat, heat um, uh, chemical transformation of foods, and so on, which really are really taking foods apart at the fundamental level, They're really deconstituting their component parts and building them back up again. And I'd suggest that this is a concern in and of itself in terms of the, the way our bodies process these ingredients. In terms of the actual food and ingredients that a lot of these foods are made of, it is the certain um, uh, basic commodities that get, that get then further processed and make up these foods. Grains get highly refined, sugars, oils, dairy, uh, also and some additives are really what make up the bulk of many of these products. And importantly, for, for the purpose of my talk today, there's very few, often very intact whole ingredients left in these foods. Uh, and then if you look at the nutrient composition, well, this has, of course, been a dominant paradigm, I'd argue, in nutrition science, and so there has been that focus on nutrient composition. And in terms of the processed foods, it's been a focus on the bad nutrients of the salt, sugar, and various fats, and also energy content. We could also talk about other, what's missing from some of these foods, lowering some of the so-called beneficial um, nutrients, such as micronutrients and, and fiber, vitamins, and, and so on. Now, this concept of ultra-processed foods, which I'll only sort of briefly define here. So this is a concept developed by Carlos Monteiro's team in Brazil, and it's become really quite... Um, um, been taken up by many public health and nutrition experts to actually start analysing processed foods, because we haven't really had these kind of categories before to even start to do this kind of analysis of processed foods. So if you don't categorise it and start, then you're not really going to be start measuring it uh, and so they define them as industrial formulations manufactured from substances derived from foods or synthesised from other organic sources. They typically contain little or no whole foods, are ready to consume or heat up, fatty, salty or sugary and depleted in fibre, protein, various micronutrients and other bioactive compounds. Importantly, they define it in a way to capture really what the food industry produces. They're industrial formulations with additives which you wouldn't find either in the home or even in a small artisanal, say, restaurant, for example. So it's not that um, commercial products... doesn't capture all commercial products in that sense, but it captures a lot of what the food industry produces. Um, but also, it's not just about... Once again, it's not just about... I want to keep everyone salt, sugar and fat in these foods. It's about the additives, and it's about the purpose of processing. It's not just uh, making convenient foods, but often foods that are hyper-palatable, um, that are, that are made to, then the use of uh, additives, for example, to sort of simulate the experience, the sensual experience of eating, let's call them real foods or whole foods, for example. Um, so that, 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 um, that aspect of simulation is, is actually taken seriously in, within this concept of ultra-processed foods. And there are many studies now being done about what's the, what's the nutrient profile of these foods and of the dietary patterns of the people who eat consume a lot of these foods, including in the UK. I'm, I'm part of a... I'm actually doing some of these studies now in Australia. I'm part of a, a network. 
and there's also uh, there's people studying the UK as well, as, and they've already published some results of that. I'll talk more about this later. Now, in terms of the health and dietary impacts of processed foods, to date we've mostly focused on the content of, sh of sugar, salt, fat and energy on these products, and by implication, foods high in these uh, components have been implicated in, in a range of health outcomes. In terms of the actual products themselves, processed products and the ingredients, not much research. So we have some now on sugar SSVs, sugar sweetened beverages, so people who <coughs> they've actually studies of the actual individual products or of, you know, the relationship between processed meats and cancer, hydrogenated oils, which produce trans fats, um, but very limited on actual products and ingredients. In terms of the kind of health impacts that uh, public health experts have looked for, it's largely, you know, uh, direct impacts on health outcomes such as obesity, diabetes, heart disease and so on, or correlations of. Um, but I want to suggest that there's, there's a whole other range of outcomes that, you know, we could also be studying more seriously, such as how these foods might be, you know, shaping dietary patterns more generally because of the way in which they're produced and also marketed and distributed. So, the way in which they might you know, encourage overconsumption of these products, regardless of the actual content, because they're very palatable, because they're easy and very quick to consume, uh, and so on. And because of the way they actually tend to displace more nutritious foods. And so there's impacts here, there's questions around that, those sorts of dietary transitions happening around the world right now. Now, in terms of the sort of, I mentioned before, the pressure, the regulatory pressure these companies are under, because of increased focus now on on processed foods and their health impacts and attempts to regulate them. So we have a whole range of policies um, coming online, front of pack labelling, taxes, junk food marketing to children and even limits on the actual composition of foods around nutrient limits. I think we're still at the very early days of these kind of regulatory um, interventions um, and there's a long way to go there. Um, but what I want to focus here, and I think it's all very positive developments there, but it's very much based on the science around salt, sugar and fat, and really a lot of these policies are trying to, to get companies to, or consumers, to moderate the consumption of salt, sugar and fat. And there's good reason for that, because that's where the scientific evidence lies at the moment, and therefore the policy needs to be based on having an evidence base. But that certainly is the focus, and that's certainly around those reformulation strategies. In terms of the market pressures these companies are under, well, in fact, consumers now around the world are asking for, or many are, not all, but you know, healthier foods, whatever, however we define that. Uh, it could be foods with less salt, sugar and fat, um, but in some ways I think there's been a shift, and I'll talk about this later, away from just focusing on nutrients, and you know, certainly it could be foods with omega-3s and antioxidants, but there's been a shift actually to, from nutrients to foods now. I think people are asking for um, whole foods, minimally processed foods, uh, less additives, this whole sort of free-from movement and so-called natural foods, which is not defined at all, but it's, um, you know, that's a common claim now in food packaging. And food companies are really responding to this. They're, they're adapting to this new demand. It's very hard for them sometimes because they have to reformulate their products, but it just seems by putting a few whole grains in a product that can make those whole grain claims. So I guess the point is there, there's, a, there's real incentives for companies to come on board here because that's where the the consumer market is shifting, and not just in the, in the global north, even in the global south, these trends are these trends are evident. Not as not as much, perhaps. Now, how are food companies responding? Um, I'm just going over this quickly because it's not the not the focus of my talk, but certainly there's a sort of the continuation of the sort of negative responses, which is a sort of denial of responsibility or pressuring governments not to implement new policies, lobby through lobbying and fund, you know, funding counter studies. 
sponsorship of front groups and so on. There's been lots written about that. I'm more interested in some of the positive responses. How are they at the same time actually saying, well, here's a problem which we want to be a, a part of the solution to, and our product can be part of this, this solution. Uh, and we can do it, we can improve the quality of our products, we can add benefits to our products, but we can do it ourselves. We can self-regulate and develop new policies ourselves. Importantly, what the focus, I mean, obviously the, the aim of these policies is to convince people to continue eating their products and eat more of them, rather than really, it's the, the counter policy really, or the counter outcome would be to actually eat less of these products. So that's clearly in, in their interests. So these are the three strategies that I'm focusing on. Um, three, what I'm calling nutritional marketing, engineering and marketing strategies for uh, improving the quality of their foods. The first one is a, really a harm reduction strategy. It's about how can we make these foods which others perceive to be harmful, uh, less harmful essentially. Uh, so it's reformulation and it's largely focused on those nutrients to limit, the sugar, sodium, uh, some fats uh, and energy and simply reducing those through whatever means. Um, so that's reformulation. But then there's two other strategies which are really offering to add, add value to food and enhance our health. Um, so this is where they, they get to say, we're actually improving people's health around the world. Through two, two strategies, one's micronutrient fortification, the adding of uh, certain micronutrients, vitamins and minerals to foods. Of course, companies have been doing this for decades now, but this is a new strategy I'm referring to, which is very much targeting people who are actually uh, potentially deficient in these micronutrients in the global south and communities, or have those concerns, uh, and are marketing directly to those people. Um, and, and the second strategy there of health enhancement is what I'm calling functionalization, which really captures any kind of claim that of, of where there's beneficial nutrients or ingredients in foods which have some direct or implied claim but going beyond just meeting our basic needs, but actually meeting our demands for optimal health, enhanced health, very targeted uh, health benefits. So this obviously plays on the word, you know, notion of functional foods, but I think it goes beyond functional foods, and I think functional foods themselves have evolved over the past decade or two. So I'm going to be talking about those strategies. And just to contextualise these, putting it back into some sort of historical context of the way foods and nutrition science has evolved, these are the ways in which I've sort of categorised eras of nutrition science over the past century or so. And these strategies sort of fit into those. So that first one of quantifying nutrition in the first half of the 20th century was all about just meeting our basic nutrient needs and particularly tackling pr problems of uh, undernutrition and deficiencies. Um, and this is where you know, micro-nutrient fortification fits in now, really a bit focusing on people who may be undernourished in, in that sense. Uh, in the mid part of the 20th century, from the 60s to the 80s and 90s, was a concern about you know good and bad nutrients, and particularly the bad nutrients and fat and even sugar, uh, which continues till to today. Um, but and it's about so reformulation fits into reducing the harmfulness from those bad nutrients. But the the, the present area is very much in that sort of functional area of nutrition, um, where there's foods now are rethought in terms of very specific relationship between between foods and nutrients and health effects on the body in a very precise way and claims through that knowledge that we can actually enhance or target particular uh, functions of the body, you know, particular processes in the body to give better health outcomes. So I think that really frames now all discussions around food, even over these other earlier paradigms. But importantly, these three paradigms are also coexisting in the present. Um, and these three strategies really, I think, are, are tying with each of these three paradigms. 
So just to go through these, product reformulation, as I mentioned, um, which is really the focus, a lot of the regulatory action is around reducing the salt, sugar and fat. Um, and it's really a single nutrient focus, but it's trying to reduce these single nutrients. Um, and I think this is important, don't get me wrong here. A lot of these foods are actually constructed out of these basic components, often in the form of you know, cane sugar, um, or um, vegetable oils, um, salt, and so on. And so, and they are what make these foods very palatable and cheap and so on. So I think this is not unimportant to actually reduce these components. Um, nevertheless, I think there's been evolution in this reformulation. So I'm talking about this old and new reformulation strategy. It shifted from being a very, in a sense, a marketing strategy, just of food companies who could selectively reformulate individual products and market them as low-fat and low-sugar and so on, to now it's actually much more systematic reformulation uh, companies have, have policies so that we're going to reformulate our whole portfolio of products over a period of time. Governments also are insisting on more systematic reformulation. So there's been that important shift there. Sometimes it's quiet reformulation, it's not advertised to the public, other times it is. It is, it is, still, it is now you know, advertised on, on, on the pack, appealing to consumers. Uh, but there's certainly a lot of uh, public health and you know, government support for this reformulation. Uh, as I mentioned, it is often still marketed. Like so, those reformulated foods <coughs> reduce by 50% sugar, but it'll, it'll be you know communicated to the consumer. Uh, and much of the debate, there's a lot of support for this. And the food, I could say, the food industry loves this strategy because they love reformulation because it means they can keep you know selling their products and say, look, we've we've made them uh, healthy now. Uh, but the real debate really between industry and government and public health is really about the who sets the standards. Is it, are these voluntary standards or mandatory standards? Who sets the actual limits? What, what, what sort of limits should, should there be around these particular nutrients? Uh, and, and the lack of sort of progress. So that's where, but otherwise there's strong support for it. So what are the, what are the limitations of this strategy um, in terms of actually producing healthier foods and also how that's sort of communicated? Um, of course these foods are because they're so, so constructed out of these basic you know, nutrient components, um, it is actually very hard for companies to reformulate. There's a lot of, they actually have to apply a lot of science and technology innovation to, to reduce components while keeping foods cheap and tasty um, and, and so on. So achieving substantial reductions, the sort of reductions we like, might like to see is actually quite difficult for them. It's also important to ask what types of foods are being reformulated. Is it foods if it's, and so I'm making a distinction here between the, I'm using this term moderately processed and ultra processed. If the problem with the, with the food is that it might be otherwise healthy but just have a bit too much salt and sugar or fat, then sure it makes sense to, to, to reduce some of that salt, sugar and fat and you've got a, a you know, hopefully a nutritious product at the end of it. But what about ultra processed foods which are really built from the ground up out of these deconstituted components of, of, of other foods? You know, does, what do we get at the end of the day when we reduce some of the salt, sugar and fat? Is it really meaningfully transforming these foods and, and the food supply? So that's why I come to this question, really, are reformulated foods actually nutritious? Isn't that, shouldn't that be the aim of any kind of regulatory and government policies around, uh, around food and processed food, producing nutritious foods? But that, I suggest, is not really the, the focus of these policies. It's reducing salt, sugar and fat. And often, ironically, some of this the salt sugar, when the salt, sugar and fat comes out, we very rarely ask what goes in in its place. And often it's simply other highly refined, processed, reconstituted 
chemically synthesized ingredients such as artificial sugars to replace um, cane sugar, for example. So it's, the focus isn't really processing and the, whole, and the various uh, functions of processing in foods. It's really just reducing these nutrients. Because you've got to remember that salt, sugar and fat are, are conceived of in this paradigm as, as nutrients and not as ingredients. Of course, we can think of sugar as an ingredient, but it's really been conceptualized as a nutrient. Um, you know, salt is sodium. We focus on saturated and trans fats, but not, not vegetable oils per se. So the, the regulation and the science really is at the level of nutrients and not foods. And so I think, as I said, it's a politics here of reformulation, and that is that really, that's why the industry loves reformulation, because the alternative to reformulation would be to tell, simply tell people, actually, just eat less of this product, eat half of the product, reduce your consumption. But no, this, but reformulation means people can keep on eating and eat more of their products, but they'll be reformulated such that they won't be as harmful as they were. Uh, and sometimes another type of reformulation that companies are doing, but it's not really being demanded of by governments or public health experts, and that is taking some of the artificial ingredients um, or highly processed ingredients out of food. So this is referred to in various ways, sort of, I call, it, I call them naturally marketed foods, but clean labelling is one term that's used in the industry for getting some of these additives out, simply because there's a public demand for these natural foods, however we define them, and of course there's problems with that term itself. Um, and there's really some quite confused you know, and contradictory trends there. Nevertheless, the food industry is quite happy to respond to these trends. Um, but it, it, for them, it's essentially a, a you know, commercial marketing strategy because it really isn't that pressure from, from government to take out you know, processed ingredients. Now, this strategy of micronutrient fortification we refer to this old and new fortification um, strategies. Of course, fortification has been done for decades, putting a few vitamins in, in foods of various quality uh, and marketing to the consumer, and there's strong consumer demand for these fortified foods. But this micronutrient fortification strategy, is, the new one really is focused on people who might actually have deficiencies in the global south or communities that are potentially at risk. Um, and it's really it's, it's the focusing on the four main micronutrient deficiencies that are identified globally, iron, vitamin A, iodine, and zinc, and really claiming to be part of the solution to this, this so-called hidden hunger. And, the, so this, and often, though, it's, it's, the, it's the very cheapest products, because these are people on very low income, so very cheap products, you know, could be under $2, very small packaging of items, targeting the bottom of the economic, people at the bottom of the economic pyramid, uh, Nestle call these products their popularly positioned products, which just means they're really, really cheap, and usually of the poorest quality in their overall product range. But it's those very foods that are cheap uh, and probably not very nutritious uh, that are being fortified and actually being sold back as, and targeting these communities. And it's not just targeting the individual consumer, it's also getting buy-in from governments and um, other, through other sort of public-private partnerships to actually endorse promote, distribute these products. So um, NGOs such as Gain and Sun who are really in that fortification business of fortifying foods, could be through mandatory fortification programs, but also through com uh, promoting commercially fortified foods. And there's also this whole other category emerging of, of emergency foods as well, which are, which are essentially fortified commercial products. So what are the limits of some of these fortification programs? Of course, fortification, 
there's a whole there's mandatory fortification programs as well and also supplement programs now I want to suggest that it's not just the, the commercial so the, the problem here in the commercial fortification what I was otherwise might look like highly processed really junky foods who, that are being fortified so that's that might distinguish it from the fortification of staple foods but there's an initial problem I think in the framing of of um, of nutrient deficiencies in terms of very specific micronutrient deficiencies in the body and in, in the diet. Um, and so this is sort of some other work that I'm working on, but this sort of framing of the problem of micronutrient deficiencies as a problem of very specific deficiencies in the diet and in the body. Uh, and that very framing also already lends itself to a solution of fortification or supplementation with micronutrients as a legitimate and scientifically validated solution. So I'm sort of questioning that initial framing, which also frames, of course, the commercial fortification programs and supplement programs as well. But it's particularly concerned when it's, when it's applied to um, foods whose overall nutrition, nutritional profile is also is questionable. Uh, and I refer to this, this sort of, these kind of nutritional engineering strategies as uh, nutritionally reductive technological practices and products. So I'll talk, about, I'll talk later about nutritionally reductive forms of knowledge in terms of what I call nutritionism. But when you take that knowledge and put it into, you know, you take that knowledge about a nutrient, for example, and actually turn that into a, by taking the nutrient and putting it into a food, it becomes a practice and a product, not just a form of knowledge. Um, and so there's this assumption that, you know, that we might understand how micronutrients work in food in the body, but the assumption, the further assumption that we can actually take that nutrient out, the, the nutrient works in isolation, we can put it into a food and it acts on our bodies very directly, in abstraction from any other nutrients or foods one might consume them with, or other, impacts on health and sort of the diet and health. That's what I call a nutritionally reductive technological practice. So and essentially, and also presents itself as a kind of techno fix to these health problems. We don't need to change anything else about the food supply or people's diets or people's access to food. We can just engineer the food supply in that way. And so once again, there's a politics here of fortification, which is the legitimation of, of I think, ultra processed foods in general that are being fortified that they have a role to play in the food supply. And it's legitimation of, in, in terms of this, um, these global strategies of the corporations to grow their sales in the, in this, in the, in the global south. Uh, and as part of this kind of like nutrition transition which going, is going on, it really is a, a scientific legitimation for those, those um, corporate strategies. Finally, the strategy of um, functionalization, which is really adding beneficial nutrients or ingredients uh, to foods and making some sort of claim to the benefits of these foods. Uh, and it's not just about nutrients anymore. There has been a shift from nutrients to foods in, in scientific research, um, in the public's mind. Uh, the public you know, is much more interested in foods now and valuing foods rather than the focus on nutrients. And food companies are responding to this too. So they're putting their whole grains and so on. Uh, or superfoods or whatever into their, into their products and making claims around them. And the nature of the claims have changed. So it's a claim not just about meeting your basic needs, this is about optimal health. So this is the new paradigm, I think the dominant paradigm. It goes beyond food, of course, it's in medicine. The, the claims about optimization, um, health enhancement and so on. And more importantly, very targeted health benefits. So you can eat this product and the product itself or the ingredient within it will actually um, will target a particular process you're interested in. If you've got you know, upset tummy, gut for your gut health, if you're, interested about, you're concerned about your weight, this, this, this food will take your you know, hunger, satiety, 
cholesterol levels and so on, and ties into these you know, trends around personalization, personalized diets. Um, also, the, and so I think this strategy of functionalization now has really infiltrated the whole food supply. It's gone beyond the old sort of, this category of sort of functional foods like cholesterol lowering margarine, for example, where it was supposed to be this sort of separate category of functional foods that emerged, everyday functional foods which you use to you know, tackle a particular health concern that you might have. Um, I think that, that vision of what functional foods could be has not eventuated. That was what was envisioned in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s. That's what the talk was around. And there's concerns around a sort of medicalisation of food and so on. It hasn't quite panned out that way. Those product products haven't taken off. There's a few isolated products around you know, probiotic yogurts and um, the, the margarines. But really what's happened on the one hand is I think all foods are being functionalised. All foods now carry some sort of implied or direct health claim of health enhancement without all the science and fancy ingredients uh, that go with it. Um, could be throwing a few antioxidants in and so on. If, uh, products like breast, um, infant food replacements, breast, breast milk substitutes um, have, have been functionalised. They're no longer in this market as somehow meeting children's basic needs or replicating breast milk. There's actually some claims to actually giving your, your child some sort of added benefit, um, omega-3s or so on. And at the same time, all foods have been functionalised. There is also this other uh, category of medicinal functional food that's emerged. Foods which really are very more, much more explicitly medicines. Their formulations, sometimes in the form of supplements, supplement foods, which are targeted at people with particular health conditions, maybe in hospital, suffering a particular disease, and companies really see a big market in this. So there's been, a, I think, a bifurcation of that sort of functional food market. And of course, these foods are carrying a whole range of claims, sometimes direct and, and approved by regulators, sometimes simply implied, and that's kind of implied claims is enough. And importantly, the government regulations you know, have come through in many countries to support these kind of claims. What are the limits of this functionalization? Well, often I think there's exaggerated health benefits coming from adding a few ingredients in foods, and this comes from the fact that we, we allow companies to market particular ingredients in foods and health making health claims, even if there's no evidence around the actual product itself. It's often about the nutrient or the ingredient. And what's important, and could just be adding you know, some fibre or omega-3s or whole grains to foods, and they of course may, may well be healthful nutrients and ingredients for which there's evidence around. But what I think is significant is that these foods, as I began the talk by saying, these foods are actually deficient in a lot of these so-called beneficial nutrients or whole intact ingredients. As a class of foods, they're deficient, and yet when companies add a bit to a product, they're able to make health claims over them. So it's really this focus on individual foods and doesn't it ignores the fact that overall as a class of foods, these ultra-processed foods are uh, removing these kind of beneficial nutrients and ingredients from the food supply and from many people's diets. And they sort of, I think they very much play on people's, that very reason people, people have these anxieties that these, these ingredients and nutrients are missing in their diet. Companies add them back in and can sort of make, uh, permitted to make those sort of uh, health claims. And you know, food companies are very active in this space in terms of even doing the primary research around the ingredients and the nutrients to, to gather the evidence required to make the sort of more uh, to make the health claims. And as a, once again, there's a politics here, both in legitimising overall this class of foods and, the, and their their role in meeting our own particular you know nutritional needs and tackling public health problems like obesity and diabetes and so on. Uh, so. So 
um, these foods are justified in that way and also by it justifies the, the allowing companies to make health claims on foods because these foods are seen to have a role in, in addressing these health problems. You know, and we're talking about vitamin water here. So throwing a few vitamins in and simply making some implied health claims is kind of enough that I think you don't always need the much higher level um, health claims with, with, you know, backed with good science. So there's a number of what I'm calling nutritional contradictions here in the marketing of these foods. So three aspects here. One, on the one hand, these foods are extremely high. If you're concerned sugar, salt and fat, these foods are high in sugar and salt and fat. And yet by allowing companies to reformulate, we actually give the tick of approval to these products overall. And we even allow them to make health claims or nutrient claims that you know, reduce fat, sugar and salt in these foods. So I see that as a bit of a contradiction. Um, in terms of micronutrient deficiencies, overall, these foods uh, tend to be deficient in, in beneficial micronutrients because of the processing they've been through and the, the ingredients they're constructed out of. Uh, I don't think I mentioned that earlier. But so as a class, they might actually be contributing to deficiencies, these nutrient, micronutrient deficiencies in, the, in certain populations. Yet, by adding a few micronutrients, they can, these companies can claim to be addressing the problems of micronutrient deficiencies and hidden hunger. And similarly, these, finally, the UPF, sorry, these ultra-processed foods are generally deficient in whole intact ingredients as a class, but by adding a few whole grains into a product, they can make a claim around the benefits of these products. So I see that as there's limitations here, both in the science, the dominant science around processed foods, how, we think, how they're approached, public health approaches, and also regulatory approaches. So to quickly sort of go through, I'll just mention these and I'll go, go through them if we've got time. So one is, this I've already mentioned, the focus on nutrients composition per se. <laughs> Nothing wrong with focusing on nutrients, but it's often come at the expense of actually talking about the ingredients in foods and the levels of processing of them. Uh, there tends to be a focus on the bad nutrients or ingredients in these highly processed foods. So the, the presence of salt, sugar and fat, but much less about the absence of beneficial nutrients and ingredients. And that's important because it's then those beneficial nutrients and ingredients which, are, which food companies are marketing on their products. There's a focus on re reducing harmful components, so the harm. Um, so let's get the salt, sugar and fat out, but not on actually creating, how do we create nutritious products and actually healthful food products. Uh, the focus on single food products uh, rather than um, these products as a, as a whole class of foods. So that's where the, the Brazilians are doing interesting research around ultra-processed foods, evaluating the whole food supply, the whole category of ultra-processed foods, rather than focusing on individual uh, products um, in the food supply or even in a company's portfolio. Companies love it if we just focus on the individual product and can make you know, deliberations about that and, and put a health claim on it or, or whatever and keeping the eye off the overall patterns and, and quality of the food supply. Uh, the fo in terms of health impacts, there's a focus on, there's an assumption that processed foods um, has impacts on obesity and NCDs, but very little research about how processed foods might actually be um, impacting on other types of health concerns, whether it's nutrient deficiencies, or even this, 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 this um, aspiration now for optimal health. Everyone wants optimal health how might ultra-processed foods be undermining our, our attainment of optimal health? But no, the focus is on obesity and NCDs. And finally, this focus on, on direct um, health and nutrition impacts of these processed foods, such as you know, how sugar might be related to diabetes, rather than indirect impacts on how these foods might be shaping 
um, dietary patterns through the way they encourage overconsumption of these particular products and displace nutritious foods, for example. So if we've got a few minutes left, I'll just um, go through some of these. So just uh, very briefly, so um, to focus on some of these, this focus on nutrients, um, one way of distinguishing here is I'll talk about the focus on nutrients versus foods versus dietary patterns. So this is where my previous work talking about nutritionism and nutritional reductionism, I won't go through that here. Various characteristics of that. One is that there's focus on nutrients at the expense of talking about ingredients, but also levels of processing really dropped off the, the, of, of the agenda there for many decades. And often there's a focus on single nutrients also, this sort of single nutrient reductionism. But the ignoring and concealing processing, I think, is important here. And there's also these claims about the idea that nutrients can impart their health benefits or detriments you know, in isolation from other components of foods and other dietary patterns. So as it's applied to processed foods, how it pans out is, well, first of all, there's this sort of public health concern about the bad nutrients of salt, sugar, and fat. Uh, also, there's pub some public health concern about, you know, these foods might not be, might be lacking a bit of fibre and, and, and so on. But the processing, per se, continues to be ignored, ignored within that paradigm. Because salt, sugar, and fat, as I mentioned, are actually treated as nutrients and not as ingredients. There's two, there are different ways of actually thinking of these very components. And what it means, though, is if you're not concerned about processing, in trying to reduce the salt, sugar, and fat, you can simply introduce other highly processed ingredients or simply non-nutritious ingredients as a way of getting the salt, sugar, and fat down. And then food companies come in and can actually also benefit from this nutrient focus through marketing the, the beneficial nutrients in their foods. So shifting to, from nutrients to talking about foods, and I think there has been a shift since the early 2000s, a gradual shift in the nutrition community, um, in the public's mind from nutrients to foods. Partly in response, I'll, I won't talk about it here, but a whole range of drivers of this shift. Nevertheless, there has been a lot more research now on food itself, uh, the quality of foods themselves, uh, and we're starting to see some studies of actual individual food products and uh, processed food products such as sugar-sweetened beverages. And we're starting to see some classification systems being developed, such as the ultra-processed food concept and the, and the NOVA system, which I'll talk about to actually classify foods according to levels of processing so we can start to do the science. Because if you're not even looking for it, if you can't even identify these foods in the first place, you can't start to evaluate them as a class of food rather than just looking at individual products. And also consumers too are demanding, are looking at foods and they want, they want whole foods or minimally processed foods and are valuing particular foods. Now, there tends to be a reductionism here as well though. There can be a reductionism, a reductive focus on foods and single food products such that we might vilify particular products, but also glorify some foods as superfoods. So, you know, that um, you need to eat this superfood for to address this health concern or enhance your health. Once again, there's a, there a food level reductionism here. So it's not just about nutrient reduction, it's food level reductionism, uh, and some of the same sort of issues ar uh, arise. So it's really, once again, it's taking foods out of a, any kind of broader dietary um, pattern context. Nevertheless, this is an important shift that's happening. So within that sort of space of actually studying processed foods at this level of food, various classification systems, I'd come up with my own classification <coughs> system um, in my nutritionism book, but really the most influential one globally has been the, what's, what they call, now call the NOVA classification system, um, which identifies different types of processed foods. It's not, not really a hierarchy of foods of processing, but the important category there is the ultra-processed foods, which I mentioned before. And importantly, there's a whole lot of teams doing research studies around in different countries around the world, 
and tracking people's what people's diets look like. People who eat a lot of these foods, they might make up 80 to 100% of their diet. What is their, what's their nutrient profile of their diet look like? What are the sort of health, health outcomes it's associated with? So I think we're still at the very early stages of that. And other, others have to, to define a couple of other classification systems, people who are more aligned with the food industry, which give a different spin on, on processed food. So there's a little politics of classification there as well. I haven't got time to, to go into those. Uh, finally, talk about dietary level approaches. So we, we are talking much more about overall dietary patterns now and diet quality. I think we're at the early stages of how, how to define different types of dietary patterns. Uh, and the quality of individual foods, but also diversity. The diversity of foods people eat is, is becoming an important um, factor, I think, there in, in, the, in that research. And importantly, once again, the, the NOVA studies that I mentioned, they're actually starting to evaluate people's overall diet, people who eat processed foods, what does their overall dietary pattern look like? Once again, and that's getting away from individual foods and saying, well, people just eat who are fed mostly by the food industry. What is their health outcomes? What's their dietary pattern look like? And where I think we can apply this and it's starting to be applied is when we look at food companies' portfolio of products, why, why aren't we evaluating the overall portfolio rather than individual products? Now, food companies love us just to focus on the individual food product and then to be able to make claims about that product that might be beneficial. But if, um, if we look at the overall profile, could we actually start to regulate the overall profile of a company in terms of um, rather than just the individual products? And so one example of this is, is the ATNI index, which, is a, uh, uh, which Mike's involved with, which is, um, evaluates companies' nutrition, nutrition commitments, some of these big food, food manufacturing corporations. They've started to do these, these evaluations of the nutritional quality of their overall portfolio. So the, one, the, the India study, which came out a couple of years ago, only, I think it was only 6% of Nestle's products of sales in India could be classed as you know, passing some minimal, minimal standard of healthy in that country. And yet Nestle claims to be the world's leading you know, nutrition, health and wellness company and they really lead on, the, on front foot by saying you know, what, how healthful their products are and, and all the benefits of their... But if you, you know, take the focus away from individual products they make claims for and look at their overall portfolio, it's very much skewed towards the kind of junk food range. So that's the benefit, I think, of actually moving and we're starting to move in this direction towards evaluating whole dietary patterns and company portfolios could be a part of that. And I've already mentioned here, so you know, this is where we can start talking about how, how ultra-processed foods shaping people's overall dietary patterns through the way they much encourage overconsumption of particular products. So even if a, if a particular product is actually, according to some criteria, not harmful, which we've, we've taken the salt, sugar and the fat out, and it's, it's, um, it passes some minimal test, what if it's designed in a way that makes you want to eat twice as much of it? Why can't we talk about that? Why can't we research that? And why can't we regulate for that? Because um, what's really going on, this, it might have passed some minimal criteria, but is the food nutritious? And once again, what's the goal here? Is it, is it to create a nutritious food supply and diets? Um, and how might we get to that point? Uh, I, this is the same slide as before. So just talking about the, the sort of health and bodily dimension of some of these. So I've been talking about foods and, and the body. So different ways in which the body is being conceived within these various paradigms. I think we've got time for this now, but these different types of bodies which, which equate with these various historical eras, the micronutrient deficient body, the overnourished body of the middle part of the 20th century, and now the 
and today as well, if we, if we focus on overnourishment, but now also, I think more particularly the functional body, the idea that we, we conceive and experience our bodies in these functional terms, in terms of looking for and, and um, assuming that that sort of relationship between particular nutrients and foods and their impacts on, on the body. Um, I think it's the, the emergent sort of dominant paradigm, uh, which really frames these other bodies as well. But they all coexist um, in the present. And so once again, these, these, these particular ways of, these very nutrient-specific ways of understanding foods translate into the way how we understand the body as well. So we have very nutrient-specific ways of understanding health outcomes, uh, whether it's diseases or optimal health. Uh, and certainly this, in terms of forms of malnutrition, uh, also very nutrient-specific understandings. And the food companies, so this is other work I'm working on, but whether it's you know, chronic undernutrition, micronutrient deficiencies or, or obesity, they're defined in very nutrient-specific terms and it's quite as distinct forms of malnutrition, uh, which are then addressed through very nutrient-specific um, dietary solutions and policy solutions. And once again, food companies can actually adapt to this through their, through their nutritional engineering and marketing strategies. I'm just about finished. So overall, my argument is around, and the focus of, my, of this research is around how corporations are able to capture these, some of these nutritional, public health and regulatory discourses for their own benefit um, and to mark themselves as being part of the solution. And last slide, but the alternative framings really is about, I've sort of already been talking about these, but certainly shifting from new, talking about just nutrients to food and dietary patterns, acknowledging that these can also be done reductively, we can even have reductive dietary level you know, pattern approaches. Um, focusing on you know, actually studying processed food as a class of foods rather than as individual products and there are also their indirect impacts on um, eating patterns. And similarly, our policy approaches can actually also shift in these directions to foods and to considering food processing quality and dietary patterns. Um, and as I think the important po point here is actually how could we regulate processed foods as a class of foods and, and the portfolio of products of companies as a class rather than just looking at individual foods. I should stop there. Thank you. Yeah.